Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Sheila Foster. Sheila is the Scott K. Ginsburg Professor of Urban Law and Policy at Georgetown University, where she holds a joint appointment with the Georgetown Law Center and the McCourt School of Public Policy. She's also co-director of labgov.city. She is the co-author of Co-Cities, Innovative Transitions Toward a Just and Self-Sustaining Communities, The Promise of Co-Cities is the Premise. And I'm really excited to have you on the show because cities are, as a born and bred New Yorker, cities are something that are are near and dear to my heart. I'm a big believer that the future exists within cities. And so finding someone who's a literal expert on the subject matter is is always going to be fascinating to me. So again, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. So- Automatically, the title like opens us into, you know, getting some definitions down, right? Like getting our our listeners an opportunity to, you know, really get a frame for what made you a look at cities in particular, and then introduce this terminology of of co cities. So, like I said, there's a there sounds like there's a promise in the title. So kind of walk me through a little bit of the thought process that brought you to, you know, re- like thinking through this subject matter, and then obviously the the title and terminology used in the book. Sure. So first of all, like you, I'm fascinated by cities. I've lived in a lot of them. Uh, I was born in Detroit, raised partly there in Miami. I've lived in San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, obviously Washington, D.C. And I've seen that The activity in cities is both what drives the fascination of cities for us, uh, but also as a scholar who who studied for many years environmental justice or environmental injustice, um, cities also contain the roots of a lot of our history, right, including segregation and um, inequalities, both economic as well as uh, geographic. So cities have also contained the promise of really this country uh, and our economy, but also have been a field for the study and understanding of why we have so much more work to do, especially in achieving, as we say in the book's title, uh, sustainable uh, communities and also just communities. And uh, lastly, cities, it's been shown, are where most of our economic output is produced, which is to say that the GDP of this country and of a lot of other countries, in fact, um, is really concentrated in the activity of urban areas. Uh, Now that's given rise, of course, to the urban rural divide, um, but also it's also created winners and losers in cities. We talk about New York and we talk about Los Angeles and San Francisco and Austin and Miami, but there's very little focus on Buffalo or Baton Rouge or you know, Cleveland, for instance. So I'm also fascinated by why some cities are successful and why some cities are not and how the successful cities might 
uh, be able to not just help the people within them or lift them up, but uh, why other uh, cities or how other cities like the Buffaloes or the Baton Rouges can also uh, regenerate the parts of those cities that truly have been left behind. It's interesting when you talked about um, GDP, because that was one of the, you know, going through the entire book, there's there's just loads and loads of not just statistics, but I would say like citations that I think so. anyone who's serious about understanding um, these topics um, around cities, around um, urban renewal and, and sustainability within cities, the book in and of itself is, is not only a great exploration of these topics, but it leads you to many other topics, right? So this this book is like a portal to understanding this world. So kudos to both you and and your co-author who couldn't who couldn't join us on on recording at this moment, but want to give Christian a shout out for obviously having been a, a big part of this project. But I say all that to say that even among all of these citations, all of these statistics, the fact that globally cities contribute so much to a, um, in many cases, a country's GDP, that blew me away. Even knowing that cities are such a focal point, I was still stunned to, to read some of these numbers, right? I mean, did you, was that something that you knew or were you also surprised by just the scope of that? That's a good question. And the way to answer it is to suggest that um, it is kind of not surprising when one travels around the world to different cities. And I have spent time, you could see that and you can feel the shift from what was an agricultural and manufacturing economy, right? Uh, in the last century from the 19th through much of the 20th century to a knowledge economy, um, and a technologically sophisticated economy. That shift you can very much feel in many cities, whether it's Accra in Ghana for me or, you know, uh, Mexico City or a lot of cities here in the U.S. Uh, so on some level, it wasn't surprising. But then when I began to read the literature of many urban economists, uh, I was blown away by the extent to which it's true. And it varies by country. Right. I mean, obviously, Tokyo has an out. Uh, size role in Japan just because there's no other city like it there, right? And so when you look at different countries, uh, the numbers vary dramatically because the role of a particular large or global city in that country is um, very outsized. So it was surprising the extent to which it's true and the kind of disparities that we see when we look in different countries between the GDP and, and urban or urban areas and the rest of the country. So yes, and the question is, what do we do about that? Uh, not from a, an abstract uh, perspective, but that has a lot of consequences. So for instance, for climate change, a lot of economies in the rural areas are drying up because of climate change, and those folks are moving into cities, which means that cities will continue to grow. This is particularly true in the global South. And uh, I have worked with mayors a lot in my career which we can talk about, but one of the things that mayors are struggling with in a lot of parts of the world, but particular in the global South is how to receive those migrants and how to prepare for them without adequate resources. So this 
outsized role of cities and of urban areas, metropolitan areas in different countries has consequences really across the board for housing, for climate, uh, and for lots and lots of other topics that relate to the quality of people's lives. You know, it's, it's interesting. We were we were going to get to this. Um, when you mentioned mayors, I got to talk about New York's mayor, who everyone is on the record. I don't know how much you you might have listened to the show or not listened to the show. That's not a trick question. It's fine if, if guests have not listened to previous episodes of the show. But to the extent that someone might have, I'm clearly on the record as not liking Eric Adams, right? So I'm going to preface this by letting you know that it's okay to like talk shit if you want to. You don't have to, but I'm just letting it be known that I don't like that dude. Right. So you you're talking Point about taken. <laughs> yeah. So talking about like the movement of of human beings from one place to another and cities being a focal part of that conversation at the at the time that we're recording this, um, because episodes don't always come out instantly, right? So likely someone's going to be listening to this a few weeks after we've recorded. But at this moment in time, Eric Adams is in the news um, a little bit more nationally than maybe he would be because he's been fairly outspoken about migrants being sent from Texas and Florida to New York and his argument being that where are we going to put them? We need federal support. New York doesn't have the resources and it's straining our budgets and blah, 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 blah. Right. And he and he made a, a well, fairly well publicized, including in conservative and um right wing media, he made a a visit to the border to take, you know, very corny pictures wearing like a windbreaker saying New York City mayor and like looking very pensively at like walls and and you no know, fencing, because all of that in the American imagination represents the border, right? So my long preamble is to say that we're we're seeing this sort of interesting space from a political perspective where cities are like a football, at least in the United States, right? So again, prefacing in the United States, cities are a, a political football to represent ideally two different political realities, right? When I was in the 80s, it was the coastal elites. Maybe that maybe that extended into the 90s with Clinton. Now it's become this this kind of new argument where, oh, if you want open borders, here they go. Deal with them, New York and, and other places, right? But then within these cities, you have a black mayor, right? So that's represented as like a democratic machine, right? So this is a little bit away from some of the the flavor of the book, but I think cities has this has this sort of cultural shorthand. Right. Where to a lot of Americans, the city means black people. Right. That's a place where black people live or other undesirables. Right. And the city is dangerous. The city is this. The city is that no matter what city you're talking about. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that sort of cultural milieu of how that all works, particularly when we're talking about issues of migrant movement whether it's for climate or violence or anything else. Well, there's a lot in your lead up there. So, yeah, you know, some of this is just uh, political football. wherever you want. <laughs> right. No, some of that's, you know, political football. And I'm not going to really get into that, right, um, about why, you know, the governor of Texas and Florida are sending migrants to New York and D.C. and blue cities. So, you know, some of that's just political football. But 
the more fundamental reality is what it's been, which is cities particularly successful or the winner cities, right? Those that are thriving overall. Of course, there are problems within every city, just like there are problems in, you know, lots of areas outside of cities. But um, there's a reason that um, migrants and other people are moving to cities. And that's what we try to understand. Um, And that's because if a lot of economic opportunity is concentrated there, I think cities have lost this negative reputation that you mentioned, because sure, Washington, D.C., uh, 20 years ago, under, you know, uh, the various African-American mayors, including Mary, Mayor uh, Marion Barry, if, uh, for those of us old enough to remember that particular mayor, um, was marked uh, with a stigma, I think, as a black city with a mayor that had lots of different kinds of trouble. But then you look at Washington, D.C. today. And it is no longer Chocolate City. It's hyper-gentrified. Many studies have showed that Washington has gentrified more quickly than almost any other city in the country. It's shocking for those of us who used to visit this city many, many years ago and visit today. So I think when people look at Washington, they no longer see, right, the Washington of the 1980s or the 1990s. When they think about New York City, regardless of the political partisanship or partisanship talk, right? Oh, there's so much crime in city. There's so much. When people think about New York City, they're not thinking about the city in the 1980s and 1990s, right? They're thinking about today's city, which is very vibrant, which has both obviously um, a concentration of banks, but also tech companies, right? Uh, And a lot of different kinds of culture. And all of these cities have uh, lots and lots and lots of millennials and Gen Zs. So I'm not sure that that holds up anymore, that kind of net. Now, there are certain parts of cities that still get bad reputations, and those are the predictable neighborhoods, right? They're the immigrant neighborhoods. Back to your point about migration. There are the Black neighborhoods uh, that are haven't been economically successful. There are plenty of Black neighborhoods that are economically successful, but the ones that have clearly been left behind. And so when people come to cities, when migrants are either bus to cities, as is happening now, or come to cities, first of all, they're settling on the periphery, right, when they settle, because it's too expensive to be in the city, but they're traveling into the city from that periphery to take advantage of the opportunities. And so what our book grew out of was trying to understand and also to measure, because we did undertake um, a multi-year survey of the different kinds of policies and projects in various cities in different regions of the world to see how cities are responding to these pressures to absorb more people, to provide housing. And in geographies or neighborhoods that have very different needs. And so the central idea is that a heavily centralized city in which all the decisions are made, you know, centrally about increasingly diverse kinds of needs and neighborhoods doesn't work. So this idea of the co-city comes out of our observation, both empirical, but also working in cities, that some of the most innovative responses to meeting the needs of urban challenges come from cities working with other actors, in particular in neighborhoods, to solve the problems that they have and to deliver the goods and services in a kind of co-produced, co-governed way. Absolutely. And you know, I think all all jokes aside, my my I 
don't like that dude. But he, I think it is a proxy because I, I watch and chart the, the the tone and tenor of the conversation, right? So, you know, as, as someone who grew up in New York, I agree that New York is safe. But, you know, I just left an election cycle where the only conversation was about crime. So the the mandate, the, the public mandate was crime is out of control. Crime is out of control, right? It's like every day the ads, and it doesn't matter where what race we were talking about. If it was a Republican candidate, they were talking about crime and how out of control it was. You could be out in Long Island, you could be in Staten Island, it didn't matter, right? So I think to your point, this notion of a out of control city still very much exists at least in the political imagination. It might not be a reality, but it is something that is used to gin up a certain response. And that response also leads to, and I'm curious your thoughts on on this idea of how budgets and the way in which we allocate the resources for a city work. Because recently, they're talking about library cuts in New York City, right? These are vibrant public spaces that to me are are essential to make a city work right but when they talk about those things the other side is well crime right we can't stop cop budgets but you know social services libraries parks we don't got money for that right so i'm curious about those sort of cultural frameworks because they in my mind the average person is, is I wish they would, but they're not going to pick up this book, right? I'm just talking about a, a regular person, not to be an elitist dick, but, you know, they're going to read the Daily News and the New York Post and whatever's on the cover is their perception. So I'm curious about, again, that when you talk about co-cities and that top-down thing, that top-down management style might not functionally work well for a city that has diverse um, movements and responsibilities. But then I think about how some people want that kind of strong arm personality, right? Where it seems like, oh, this dude's going to come in and solve all the problems, right? Kind of the buck stops here, right? So how did we go through the practicality? Well, those are not either or. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah, go Right. Go I mean, it. those are not either or. So it's not that you either get a strong mayor who controls everything. And don't forget about the city council, right? Mayors don't have all the power, but a strong central government, or you get a government that listens to their constituencies and meets them on the ground. Look at New York City. You have both. You have community boards, uh, much like you have neighborhood councils in Washington, D.C. So one of the things we talk about, and again, much of our reflection, it's not theoretical in the sense that, oh, we want to build something. It's more, this is already happening in cities. So how do we understand this? So, for instance, in New York City, you already have a distributed system of neighborhood input. You have what's called participatory budgeting, which was something that started in Brazil. And that's flourishing in the United States and places like Chicago and New York, all places with strong mayors in which parts of the budget is given over to communities yep. to tell us how you want to spend this money. I was on the community board many years ago. Exactly. So, <laughs> and I've sat on the New York City mayor's panel on climate change for many years in New York City, where I've lived for 20 years. And there you see the mayor's office. Now it's called the Office of um, Environmental and Climate Justice under Eric Maidem, 
under Eric, I mean, I'm sorry, Mayor Adams, who renamed that office, um, you see them working with a lot of the groups in communities like West Harlem, like Southern Brooklyn, like uh, the Bronx, right? The South Bronx, working to help those communities be resilient and allowing those communities to plan for themselves and helping them with the resources to, you know, uh, uh, to become more resilient to flooding or to reduce their energy burden. So even in these cities, so it's not a trade-off, it's more, how does that work in a place like New York versus a place like Baton Rouge, for instance, where we're also working, or Buffalo? Uh, Because all, so our message is that if you lift the lid of governance on these cities, how they're run, you will see a lot of this already baked in there. What we call this co-city, this kind of let's work with, not just people on the ground, but uh, coming back to the question of budget, how do cities fund themselves, right? Yes, of course, there's a huge budget that the mayor and the city council control that is partly the tax dollars that we all pay to the city and to the state that comes back to the city, but that's usually not enough to fund the kinds of services that people demand. And then there's federal government money that also comes down through the states to cities for things like police. But there's still a large unmet need. And that's where over the last half century, cities have increasingly relied upon these public-private partnerships, the private sector to step in and to deliver basic goods and services. So that's been a model that has flourished to provide public goods. The market is providing what the state could not. A lot of people have called that neoliberalism. And so that's you know a fancy academic term for just saying that the market has replaced the state in many instances. And sometimes that has an upside, but a lot of people criticize that. For our purposes, what we see, we talk about this kind of pooling resources, not just between public and private, but we see private actors helping communities along with the city and along with the nonprofits in their communities, the organizations on the ground to meet the needs of those neighborhoods. So we've moved past public-private and we see public-private community knowledge partnerships, for instance, flourishing in a lot of cities in ways that the communities are happy about because that means that they have a say in what kind of services they're getting, they're better able to get their needs met, Mm -hmm. right? And they become stewards of their own success, right? And those resources can stay within their communities and they're not displaced. So that's really what we're interested in. And that exists under an an Eric Adams mayoral model as well as others. So I don't think it's a trade-off, right? I mean, yes, people want the strong mayor, but people also want the, the local government to be responsive to their needs. And a smart mayor will listen to that. And even an Adams knows that, notwithstanding his rhetoric. Yeah. But if, <laughs> but if you look at his actions, uh, at least in the climate, you know, justice area and other areas, even he is knows that the smart thing to be is to be responsive. Of course. And even- To the innovation that's already happening. <laughs> and, and even in my critique, I'm not suggesting that he's like a dictator. Right. Like I, I sat on the community board. I've, I know how strong uh, a city council is, but I guess what I'm saying is it, it's not just about him. It's just generally right. Mm-hmm. That there is, you know, what they used to call the bully pulpit. 
right? When they were talking about like a Theodore Roosevelt back in the day, like the the power of the president just can't act unilaterally, but a a president's rhetoric matters, right? And so when I'm talking about these mayors, whether it's him or Lori Lightfoot or others, the rhetoric is what's important because that's to me is what's sort of setting the stage. There's a reason why absolutely a Tucker a Tucker Carlson who has no interest in New York City or in the lives of black and brown people is talking about Eric Adams and his trips to the border, right? That's because it, it supports a narrative that they want to promote, right? So that's where I try to parse where he matters while also knowing that he's not, he can't do whatever he wants. But as a as a person on the ground, like I'm, I've not written the book, but it does rub me the wrong way to hear, you know, New York City has no space when I walk around empty lots in New York City all the time, right? Filled with, you know, I joke around with my friends that the most popular store in New York is commercial space for rent, right? Like there's, I mean, there's blocks and blocks and blocks of New York. And I'm not talking about in places there people will be like, well, of course that neighborhood sucks. So I'm talking about like Soho, right? Tribeca. West Village that are empty, blocks and blocks empty. So when people come on TV and say, we don't have space for human beings, I'm uh, perplexed. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you've said a couple things that are interesting. One is, uh, I complete. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that the mayor is powerless or doesn't matter. In fact, you're talking about the soft power of mayors, that yeah, ability absolutely. to get up and frame. And that's why... You know, I've been involved in another part of my life in the Global Parliament of Mayors and mayoral networks. That's why mayors get together and get on the national and international stage and exercise their soft power, even when, if you look at larger national or international politics, they're pretty low on the totem pole of those politics, but they manage to leverage their soft power to move things along, right? To, to move money and to move policy. So you're absolutely right. And Adams is very much... Um, skilled at, you know, grabbing that soft power on the microphone. But the other thing you said, and, and and this really does come back to the book about how much infrastructure, empty buildings, vacant lots, cities have, that's of course only grown throughout the pandemic, to repurpose really, which is what a lot of cities are doing, for homeless populations, for people who are housing insecure, for migrants. And that's exactly what we're talking about in the book, right? Some cities are so far along in doing that. We saw, you know, some of that here in New York. I mean, the use of hotels for homeless populations, for instance, the the shacks, I call them outside of restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, literally, you know, the, kind of sharing. So Outdoor it, dining sheds. <laughs> exactly. So it's what I call infrastructure sharing. Like cities are sharing their infrastructure to produce new kinds of goods so people can live better in cities. And you're right, there's there is enough, even in a place like New York City, even in a global city that produces all this income where housing is expensive and people are still moving, <laughs> there is still a lot of empty space in core areas of Manhattan. I'm glad you said that. It's not just out on the periphery. It is in the West Village. It's in Soho. And you can look at all kinds of cities. Obviously, the cities that are struggling and in decline, like a Detroit or Buffalo, has tons of this vacant property. But one of the things we point out in the book is even in very successful cities. So what we're trying to get at is our 
recognition, not only through our observation, but our own work, that cities are innovating around what to do with all that infrastructure, how to share it with people, with communities, with populations that can fit in cities and that can potentially thrive in cities. If only the cities were open to working hand in hand with various stakeholders to turn those assets, that those public assets really, into public goods and services for you know the most vulnerable, including migrants in these cities. And that's exactly what the book's about. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the book lays out some really like powerful use cases and, and looks at a variety of types of cities and ask really hard questions, right? And one of the the questions that I kept coming back to as I went through the book, and, and this is going to be sort of philosophical, right? But I, I think it's at the core of most of the things that we're kind of posing to one another, right? Is, you know, who is a city for? Fundamentally, I remember Bloomberg, and I'm going to paraphrase this statement, right? But when he when he had his three terms as mayor, you know, one stolen, he talked about how he wanted a New York City that was for billionaires, right? Like I, I think I'm again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know exact, but it was, but that was the line, right? Like we want a city that's going to be for this playground for for the billionaire class. In in the same way, Giuliani kind of that people call like this Disneyfication of Times Square, right? Even though that was underway before him, but he kind of gets credit for it. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's kind of he's attached to that notion, right? And I think especially after a 9-11, right? This catastrophic event that deeply affected New York, both physically and psychologically, it was all about selling this idea of bigger and better. And I think that's a very different kind of what a, who a city is for than the city my parents came to in 1970 from Barbados and Guyana, right? So how do we answer of a very philosophical sort of question? Because I think answering that question leads to the type of co-city structure you're ultimately going to land on or develop. That's right. And I think that question can be answered empirically. If you look back historically, who is a city for? Cities are the places where immigrants arrive first, right? Where a lot of the factories came, a lot of where industry co-located, whether you're talking about the fashion industry or the or or the diamond industry or the financial industry and now the tech industry. And also it's the place for a lot of infrastructure improvements, as we saw under Robert Moses. It, it is the place where federal funding flows to create the infrastructure so that commerce and human life goes on, right? So if you look back historically at cities, cities have been for everyone <laughs> and a place where not just the economy is built, but also, you know, ethnic groups, new Americans arrive and flourish. And in the second and third generation, they may move out, but they often start in the city. You know, African-Americans move from the South to cities in the North. So that's why, so cities will always be important in our story of America here. Like suburbs in the mid you know, 20th century, of course, fueled by you know, federal funding and a mortgage uh, and lending industry that was 
we, as we know, discriminatory, that created these places where people could escape the thickness of cities, right? The kind of all of the stuff that was happening in cities that both had positive but also negative effects, um, including pollution and crime, et cetera. So yes, you have that dichotomy. But historically in cycles, we keep coming back to cities and you know, cities keep rising from the ashes. How many times have we heard New York is done <laughs> after 9-11, after the pandemic? And, you know, I remember people asked me, so is is New York over now <laughs> during the pandemic? And I said, I'm not going to call that. Right. Because people come to cities for a reason. It's the proximity. Right. And urban economists talk about this literally working close to other knowledge workers or factory workers. They learn from each other. So there's actually a, rea- a spillover effect. So working in proximity to other folks, they come to find a mate when they're young. They come for culture. So I think a city is for all of that. And historically, we see that the hard question, the hard question is how do you accommodate all of that richness in cities uh, when you have an economy in which, and we say this in the book, sometimes the state has retreated into the background is no longer providing affordable or public housing. So Vienna, for instance, Austria, 60% of its housing is public housing, what they call social housing. And it looks like some of the luxury condos that we have here, right? The state is playing a role. And even though cities are producing all of this economic GDP and opportunity, the state is also helping people to take advantage of that in close proximity, right? To be able to live there. And, and we don't see that as much in other places in the world, in particular in the U.S. So I think one challenge that we've tried to hit on is that, you know, we think that the role of the state is very important in building a city that works for everyone and because the market's not going to do it. Yeah. And it's it's funny because you, you talked about the notion of, of infrastructure. And one of one of the questions that I that I have jotted down here is the, the notion of, of infrastructure, which is a big word, but it can mean lots of different things. It can mean digital infrastructure. It can mean actual, you know, roads and bridges and and housing, you know, cultural, I think could be infrastructure. The way I'm thinking about it for the purpose of this question is the sort of hard infrastructure things, roads and buildings, bridges and stuff like that. Is sort of the existing infrastructure an opportunity or a limitation? I know it's going to depend on on the place, but I know like I, I look I was in Istanbul. I spent a lot of time in Istanbul in 2019, and I remember I flew into the old air, the old what's now the old airport. My first time there, I flew into that airport, um, Ataturk Airport, and then I spent like two weeks there, and then I flew out of the new airport, and I was blown away by the scope and scale of this airport. Right, I was like, fuck this is amazing, right? Like just, just everything about it. Like, it's not even just the size of it, but the functionality of it, the lighting, the air, the amenities, that's everything. Had the same experience when I flew into Seoul. It's going to Thailand. And I literally think the fact that I had a layover in Seoul deeply affected the, the way my trip went because I was so well rested even after such a long flight, right? So I'm big on airports. <laughs> but um, I say all that to say that then I look at JFK, right? And I'm like, JFK is a disaster, right? And I feel like they don't want it to be a disaster, but it's it's either the ocean 
or somebody's backyard. Like there's just no available space to do what was done in Istanbul, right? Or LaGuardia. I mean, look at LaGuardia now. Yeah, LaGuardia, they have improved, right? But it's not- Uh, Dramatically. Dramatically. But it ain't getting bigger. It's not getting bigger, right? (laughs) Right. So I'm curious, like your, just your general thoughts about infrastructure, because it seems like a lot of the promise and ingenuity that I see broadly, and you know, I'm not the subject matter expert, so I'm saying that tangentially, I read an article here, I read an article there, they're in these like Middle Eastern, South Asian, Asian cities where I'm like, well, they just got room, right? Everything's new, right? It's not like- tearing up the street in Dumbo, where I'm like, they still doing that. 10, year, <laughs> 10 years later, Dumbo's a disaster, right? So I'm just kind of, you know, joking, but curious about how you see infrastructure as, as hindrance or help. And then I want to ask a public housing question. So I'm p- putting that in the air. So you said a couple of things. First, new versus old cities. Of course, in the East, they can build whole new cities, which they've done to accommodate the growing population, to accommodate the workers, et cetera. Um, areas that have extra land, you know, obviously New York City is landlocked, uh, but we can always build up, right? We can always build up. There is no limit to the air or how far up you can build. So it is just a matter about cities being creative with the infrastructure and the land that they have. But obviously, when you go around the world and you're in regions that have more buildable land, it's like Florida, you know, why does Florida keep building houses or Texas or, you know, the Southwest where a lot of people are going because they have more land. It's an elastic land market. That's not to say that incredibly dense cities here and Europe and other places can't take good care of their infrastructure, can't keep it up, can't, you know, treat it as heritage and, you know, keep it up. We've done a poor job of that, hence the Infrastructure Act that the federal government is now putting in place because we're so far behind in doing that. Can we build a new JFK that doesn't depend on new land to expand? Of course you can, you can build up, like I said. And it's just a matter of the resources to do that. But I also think infrastructure plays a key role in what we talk about, which is improving uh, the services and the goods that people have. So, you know, um, you could take old buildings and one of the things we talk about is the rise of land trust in cities, uh, both city land trust, but community land trust, in which cities have all of this vacant infrastructure, land, buildings, and they're allowing communities. New York City has a, in the uh, Department of Housing, has a program in which they will give communities money to plan for the vacant land and buildings, put it in a land trust, and that will keep it affordable for housing or for a commercial or artistic space. So infrastructure is like a down payment, right? It's like the foundation on which um, local governments can help lots of different kinds of communities thrive. So I think that infrastructure, not just the big infrastructure that you talked about, which is obviously massively important and frankly, is not a local government provision, right? It is something that you need federal government money for and probably private sector money as well. But there's infrastructure throughout. One of the other things that we talk about is... um, is uh, broadband as infrastructure. You know, you look in these cities and, you know, a third of the households in Harlem and in the Bronx, et cetera, don't have access in the home to high-speed internet when you need that to find a job and, you know, kids have to study <laughs> on a computer and need that. Instead, they're in Starbucks or the public library trying to do their homework on their phone. You know, again, one of the projects that we worked on was working with the the kind of entrepreneurial center in Harlem, that's a community-based center, a Silicon Harlem in the city and Microsoft 
to help to connect into the city's broadband infrastructure and create a community broadband network that's high speed, that reaches into public housing in Harlem, that allows people to have direct access to low cost and high speed internet to meet their needs, even in a city where they've invested tremendous amount of money into being a smart city, into having the best broadband infrastructure. So it's so important, both on a big level, but also in terms of our model of the co-city. Yeah. And, you know, you you mentioned public housing, and this wasn't a, a question that I had down, so I'm sort of freestyling this, so to speak. <laughs> um, but I, I remember a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was more than a couple of weeks, but there was a really interesting article, and I, I, it's probably in one of, my, one of my thousand tabs that are open on on my laptop, but I'm not going to look for it now. But it was this this really interesting, like long form essay and 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 analysis of the way in which we have like sold the idea of public housing in in the United States. And public housing has been largely again, this is like a marketing way, right? As a failure, right? Like we're kind of throwing good money after bad and public housing is not conducive. It doesn't work. And I think that's sort of the the general narrative of, of public housing, right? And to your point, you juxtapose that with many cities around the world where public housing doesn't really have that stigma. And it's also um, like better imagined, right? And it, and it, it reminded me of this piece that I read about June Jordan and Buckminster Fuller when they sort of worked together to like reimagine Harlem, right? Like, can we build a different type of community housing within a, a place and at, at the time that was heavily maligned for all the obvious reasons, uh, different from the kind of gentrified Harlem of today, right? So I'm, I'm throwing all that out there to say like, you know, so much of the reality of on the ground is so different from the narratives that are being shaped, right? And public housing, it has a racial connotation to it, right? It's it's like urban, right? Whenever you hear the word urban, that just means black people, right? Like public housing, somebody could probably throw show me all the stats about like, well, there's more white people living in public housing because if you look at Alabama and Mobile, okay, great. But when you say the words people only thinking about black people in a city right some kind of tall brick building good times cabrini green that kind of thing right so with this notion of public housing how do we kind of do that june jordan buckminster fuller exercise right and reimagine not just the structure but like who it's for and who it serves you know how you know because you you do mention some of these elements in the private-public partnership stuff, right? I mean, I think that's already happening. So uh, there was a well-publicized trip by a bunch of American mayors and others that went to Vienna to look at their social housing, because it's not that housing is not just architecturally and structurally beautiful, but also it doesn't have the stigma attached to it that our public housing has. Um, It's not just because there are plenty of African, you know, migrants in Vienna, if you, you know, visit these countries now, they're full of immigrants. Uh, But that housing isn't just for immigrants. It's not stigmatized as that. So there are other models. And this has driven, I think, our 
work in this area over the past few years is that in a global economy, in a global kind of ecosystem around policy and around laws and around, you know, leadership, there is a lot of sharing in these mayoral networks, in these cross-border networks in which they're learning from us. Of course, there's lots to learn from how we do things in cities. Like, and, you know, folks will tell you that abroad, but we can also learn from them <laughs> around social housing, around what's now, and my co-author writes more about this, around co-housing, forms of co-housing. I've, I've talked about land trusts, which have taken off from the Rio or, or from the favelas in Rio to, you know, cities in America, to European and, and African cities. You know, this model is taking off because the idea is that you can build affordable social housing and cooperative forms of housing that aren't just kind of state-led, but where the state is subsidizing, but you're building nice housing in which people, much like we live in a condo or a co-op, are co-owners of it, but can keep it affordable through uh, limited equity tools. So this is all in the book, right? These things are happening and they are models and they're being utilized. We don't see it in the average newspaper article unless you're reading, let's say, Bloomberg has a city's uh, section where they report on a lot of this. And then there are other you know, newsletters and magazines like Next City. You know, if you read those regularly, you see all of these things being talked about. But I think the models are there. So we can move to another. And some American cities are starting to do that, yeah. but not nearly enough, not nearly enough. And I think it, it is exciting, right? Like, I, I think one of the things that's really beyond just the, the deep scholarship of the book is, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but there's definitely a hopeful tone to yes. the book. Very and much intentional. Okay, good, good, good. And there's also an in, like an instructional tone to the book, right? Like there's that was intentional a lot of, as well. <laughs> there's a lot of examples and and models, and so a lot of of what I'm trying to dig around is how different, like it appears, like you said, if you open the newspaper, you're not seeing a lot of these stories versus like the scholarship that you've uncovered, because it does read very much like a discovery and. It's like peeling away a lot of onions, right? Or or peeling away an onion in the sense that, you know, you you referenced um, Highline, for example. I remember the first time I knew of anything connected to the Highline, it was I went to MoMA for some reason. I don't know why. This is years years before the Highline even existed. They had models of this thing that was going to be called the Highlines, right? So if anybody ever seen like scale models of a project, they're you know white foam board and you know they're all very nice <laughs> um so they, they had this in moma i don't know why they had it in moma and my first inclination was like that seems really cool that will never happen right <laughs> because if it's new york because so i was like you know they still ain't expanded the second avenue subway station so i don't see this happening but then you know the highline did open up and the highline is amazing right like i recommend people go to the highline i go to the highline all the time but when you peel back that onion the High Line has has been also a, a problematic project where even the people who started it were like, eh, we could have done this differently, <laughs> right? Like they should have hired you from the very beginning, right? And then they probably would have had a, a better outcome, not because they set out to destroy neighborhoods, but, you know, you walk the High Line, your billboards for $5 million apartments in a place that didn't used to have $5 million apartments, right? So building a High Line introduced now this whole other piece of it. 
like un, unattended consequences, right? And Atlanta's going through this now, trying to build its beltline, and they're learning from New York, right? They've got proposals to build a community land trust with the High Line, keep to use some of these tools to keep the area affordable. So yeah, we made this big mistake, but the point is other cities are looking at the models that you can utilize to design it better. Absolutely. And and LA is is going through something like this. You know, you know, there's a destination Crenshaw project, yes. just mm-hmm. to name one of them, right? Where full disclosure, one of my chapter brothers is is the CEO of Destination Crenshaw. So shout out to Jason. Um you know that where they're they're trying to wrestle with this notion of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. And and you exactly. mentioned stewardship is a concept I've talked around about a lot, right? So, you know, how do we continue to, given the incredible amount of information in the book, the hopefulness of the tenor of the book, to embed more of this learning, more of this stewardship, so we can take the positive elements of a high line. And make it better, like you mentioned, in in other cities that are wrestling with this issue right now. Or, you know, Hudson Yards, another branded as a neighborhood, doesn't feel like a neighborhood to me. (laughs) Right? It feels like a big-ass mall. Well, so I will submit that it's already happening. That there is a learning community out here in terms of the people that work in these places where these huge infrastructure. So you talk about infrastructure, like the High Lines and Infrastructure Project. We took an old railway and we repurposed it, right? I mean, all these cities that are undertaking, again, I think catalyzed by the federal money that's coming, that money in both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act is going to be catalytic in many of the communities that have been talking about, but also for cities more generally undergoing infrastructure projects that are going to change communities for the better, we hope. And the money is geared towards that, right? And there's Justice 40 on top of that, the Biden administration commitment to 40% of the new federal investments benefiting disadvantaged and disinvested communities. So I am hopeful for this reason, because there is a lot of learning going on, not just in the U.S., but between the U.S. and other cities. And the reason we brought forth all of these elements in the book is because a lot of this book comes out of again, this huge project of actually seeing what's going on. Like we're not creating examples. You could do this, you could do that. This is more like this is happening and this is happening in different places. And there's a lot of co-learning and a lot of, you know, adaptation, you know, we're against cutting and pasting. What happens in one place, you can't cut and paste and do it, but you can learn the basic elements, which is why in the book, we say we extract some principles for the co-city. It's not a roadmap. It's more you know, here's what we think is behind all of these models that we see around the world. So it is a grounded project in that sense. I mean, you know, some of it's theoretical and academic and scholarship, but a lot of it, you know, we have this huge index in the uh, back of the book because we surveyed over, you know, 500 and some projects in over 200 cities to show that it is doable. It's not just an academic fantasy. And people are learning, you know, from each other. Absolutely. And experimenting, you know, with these models. And it's practical. It's very practical. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, I'm not picking on, on Richard Floyd in particular. You reference him in the book, right? And, you know, I remember when I think he was at his most, what I would call like pop culture popular, right? Like, I mean, he's very successful dude, right? Um, but there, I think there was this moment in like those like Obama 2000s when he was like one of the guys, quote unquote, right? And I feel like 
if I look at him again from that culture lens, a lot of these things kind of coincided with like TED Talks, right? And Richard Florida, and they all kind of all come together. And I think he's someone who has also said like, eh, I kind of missed a few things with this creative class, right? Like I didn't, so I'm giving him some kudos of like thoughtful. Absolutely, absolutely. He gets he major of, credit for yeah. writing the urban crisis and saying, I got it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I got some of this wrong and now we have a crisis and here's how to fix it. I give him full credit for that. Absolutely. 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 Like he didn't like double down. Exactly. Right. He he said like, you know what? Eh, I kind of missed how this hyper fuels gentrification, right? And how this really affects black and brown and other folks who are not going to participate in a creative class conversation. Right. Or economy, frankly. Or yeah. economy. Uh, right. right. Exactly. I mean, that's it. Yeah. So there's a lot of like really practical stuff in the book that is very different from, I think, where someone like him started. Because I read the first book, right, which is very sort of like, you know, this sort of utopian, tech utopian talk that very much fit that moment. Right. Very Malcolm Gladwellian. Right. There's like a cottage industry of these folks that are typically dudes. Right. But not exclusively dudes. Your book is very different from that, right? In the sense that it's more readable, in my opinion. Um, so it's well-written, but is also grounded and practical in a way that I think, like I said, it's very hopeful. So in the time we have left, I'm keeping an eye on the time, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about how you frame some of these ideas relative to, relative to the pandemic. And you were gracious enough to send me an addendum, like, Maybe not at the end of the book, but an essay that you wrote that sort of dovetails, if that's a fair enough word, on on some of the ideas in the book, but specifically addresses pandemic, right? And the responses that we've had to the pandemic. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about that thinking, because I think the pandemic gave rise to sort of a emergency situation, Right. So, I, I, you know, I'd love to get a sense of like, you know, what did we sort of learn from this? What did we get right? What did we get wrong, right? And I'll also give my own editorial that we're still in a pandemic, right? Despite We are still in a pandemic. We are, yes. We're all yes, pretending that right. we're not. The pandemic Absolutely. is still yeah, here. Yeah. Um, just the not. pandemic is still here, but yeah. we're behaving as if it's not. But oh, that yeah. aside, I mean, I think there's actually a lot to learn from what cities did during the pandemic. I mean, one of the points I make in that short piece, it's called infrastructure sharing in cities, is that, you know, when there's a hurricane in New Orleans or so, or heat wave or flooding somewhere, cities adapt very quickly. They respond very quickly. They open up stadiums. They give people housing. They turn their infrastructure toward meeting the needs of the exigency, right? And that happened in the pandemic. But the point I make is that, the scale at which that happened was different than in a hurricane or you know post hurricane or post flooding where you're just talking about one community being impacted or part here entire cities adapted right their infrastructure and that could be closing down streets and sharing with pedestrians and bicyclists you know converting hotels across the city to for homeless populations you know, all of the steps. And then there were policies and programs and new funding that allowed cities to do this very quickly. What I would argue is that the pandemic taught us that the barriers that some see to creating a co-city, let's say, to using infrastructure 
to provide affordable housing, co-housing, business incubators and affordable commercial spaces in communities that have a lot of entrepreneurship but can't afford the infrastructure to scale it up to providing green space and park space. Like that infrastructure exists, but cities use land banks and they use a lot of other tactics to hold onto their infrastructure and not adapt it to the needs of their communities because they don't see it like the exigency of a pandemic or a climate event. But the pandemic taught us that not only can cities do it, they can do it quickly. They can do it quickly and adaptively in a way that meets basic needs of the moment, right? And what they don't see is that those needs can be poverty, lack of housing for people. It's not just about a health or climate emergency. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot, and we see now at the state level, including in New York, as well as California and other states, new programs that help cities to rezone and to readapt. So, you know, turning all the empty office space in Manhattan, not all of it, but a lot of the empty office space into housing. Um, you put more housing on the market, you, when supply better meets demand, you may see, you know, some of the rents and, and housing come down, you know, allowing some communities in on the periphery of, you know, the center, uh, whether in the boroughs or East Village, et cetera, you know, use some of the available infrastructure and supporting them, right, to turn it into supportive housing and commercial and other spaces. So, I think we saw for the pandemic that it can be done. It can be done efficiently. And cities have plenty of infrastructure to share. They definitely do. This, like I said, New York City is overflowing with, Absolutely. with infrastructure. You know, I, I want to get to the final two segments of the show, because if I, if I don't keep an eye on this time, I'll keep you on here forever. Okay. <laughs> and I know you got things to do. So the, the first um, section um, of the show, um, of the final two sections is off the dome. And this is just an opportunity to ask some rapid fire questions. And I have three, right? And these are kind of obvious, right? You're you're an expert on cities, right? You've traveled and, and worked and surveyed and did all that kind of stuff. What's your favorite city? New York. Ah, okay. You're, that's easy. See, that's a perfect answer. <laughs> you don't, you don't got to sell a New Yorker on why New York is awesome. No city like New York. That's right. <laughs> I would 100% agree. What is your wish list city, a city that you've always wanted to visit, but even with your vast amount of expertise, you, you haven't visited yet for whatever reason? That's a good question. Uh, there are a few of them, but I would say Tokyo only because my son is obsessed with Japanese culture and speaks Japanese and he would love to go to Tokyo. And if I had a wish that is granted about what's the next city you go to, I would love to go to Tokyo and take him. Okay, that's awesome. And and my final question is, what are two essential elements to any great city? Like every great city has got to have two. Number one, we talked about this, leadership. Like you can't do anything without good leadership. It doesn't have to be the mayor, but it has to be someone in uh, city government that has the ability to move things. Number two, I think some amenity, either natural or built amenity that draws or cultural amenity. I think that, you know, the best cities have either natural amenities or they've built uh, the kinds of amenities that attract a diverse group of folks that they can help build their economies around. Awesome. I, those are great answers. See, I told you this is going to be quick. And the, the final section of the show is called The Drop. And The Drop is a recommendation of anything at all that our listeners should check out 
I'm going to go first. Um, my drop is a, a new book that I've just started to get into a little bit. You know, again, at the time of us recording this, um, we just passed another Martin Luther King Day. That is a, a day of great pride because Martin Luther King Jr. is obviously a seminal global figure, but he's also a radical figure in the best sense of the wor word. And it's been so frustrating <laughs> to see his legacy and his work and his principles so diluted by those who have no interest in really wrestling with his ideas. So Martin Luther King Day for me has become a day kind of like 9-11 where I don't really turn on a TV and go online because it's so annoying. <laughs> um, and so having said that, I went out and got a, a new book about Martin Luther King, new for me, and it's called To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. And it it's a it's a really good annotation of just how um, steeped in a a radical anti-capitalist anti-military tradition um, Dr. King truly was. Um, so that's my drop. So the floor is yours. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm going to drop another book on urban America that I read and is written by a colleague at Stanford uh, uh, whose work I admire greatly. She also has spent a lot of time in what she calls the discarded cities. And it's called Reimagining Discarded America by Michelle Anderson. And she has incredible stories about places as diverse as Detroit and Lawrence, Kansas, that about the places that we've left behind and how people in those places are hopeful and trying to turn those places and those cities around. So I would highly recommend that because it's very hopeful, real, but hopeful and right. forward looking. That sounds like I'm going to be adding another book to the pile. <laughs> you should, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, this has been an, an awesome conversation. You know, the the book, again, is Coast Cities, and it is just a, a really, really fascinating and 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 hopeful and instructive read, you know, cities and, and how important they are and how vital they are. I'm a product of New York City, so I'm always going to beat my drum for cities. I can't thank you enough for joining me on The Deep Dive. This has been a great conversation. It is such an honor to be on your show and uh, always a pleasure to talk about the book. But I love that, you know, someone has read it and absorbed, I think, the main parts. Um, and so I thank you very much for the kind words that, that you have about the book and for having me on. Oh, thank you so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.